recently, um, Tricia actually, brought up a great conversation question, uh, a conversation starter that relates to a new book by David Brooks. Um, The book is uh, How to Know a Person. And most of us, us, when we're getting to know a person, we sort of start out with general chit-chat about, uh, you know, where are you from, what do you do for work, what do you do for fun. Um, Brooks says, if you really want to get to know someone, ask a question like, how do your ancestors show up in your life today? Think about that. That's an interesting question. How do your, your ancestors, and you can take that back as far as you want, show up in your life today? So that can bring up fascinating information and understanding about ethnic and cultural heritage. Um, it can bring up things about traits that we might share with ancestors, physical, mental, spiritual. Maybe obstacles that we've had to overcome because of ancestry. Um, Even perhaps our goals and what our expectations for life are can come through our ancestral heritage. In a sense, that's what Matthew is after with this genealogy that opens his story about Jesus. We have to remember that Matthew wrote this gospel for people who had never met Jesus in person, and most of whom had probably not even heard of Jesus until they either read this or heard this read. So Matthew wants everyone to know right from the very beginning that Jesus isn't just anyone. So he starts out with a genealogy. And for the most part, like you heard, it's just so-and-so begat. That's the old King James Version. So-and-so begat. This guy begat that guy, and that guy begat another guy, and that guy begat. And it just goes on with lots of begatting. Um, And most of us would not generally probably start a story about someone important that way. In fact, I think that most of us, if we were at a bookstore and we picked up a uh, biography and you know saw that it started out with a genealogy we'd probably just flip over that and get to the real story or maybe just skim over it to see if there are any names that we recognize but uh, it wouldn't be something that we would generally start out with but when we take a look at Matthew's gospel it's astonishing how much story is in there we get, to not, we get to know not only the story about Jesus as a human being and, and all this heritage that comes with him, uh, but we also see the outline of God at work throughout the history of God's covenant people, the Jewish people. And we get a glimpse of God's work in the world into the future and our part in it. Through what amounts to uh, God's family tree, Matthew reveals that God loves all people. God's love includes all people. And that God's intention is that all people might love one another. Now, considering that 
This is the family tree of a guy born in a sleepy town far away from the center of the Jewish world in Jerusalem and the temple. Matthew starts out things with a pretty audacious claim in verse 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The original Greek, it's not the genealogy. It's the book of Genesis of Jesus Christ. Ring a bell? The book of Genesis? It is intentionally, I believe, Matthew equating the birth of Jesus with the original creation. For Matthew the coming of Jesus is as big as the original creation. And we also need to remember that Christ is not a family name. It's not Jesus Christ, the son of the, you know, Nazarene Christs, as opposed to the Bostonian Christs. Christ is a title. The Greek translation, as I was saying earlier, it's the Greek translation Christos of Messiah of the Hebrew Messiah, and it means literally the anointed one, the long-awaited anointed one of God. Matthew is claiming that Jesus is the one for whom God's covenant people have been waiting for centuries. In conjunction with that, Matthew claims that this guy from the sticks is the son of David and the son of Abraham. There's so much that could be said about just those two titles alone. But Dale Bruner, uh, who I will be, I'm sure, quoting quite often, he's um, a, a wonderful scholar, um, used to be a professor at Whitworth College. Uh, he's got a great commentary on Matthew, so I'll, I'll be referring to him a lot. But he sums this up succinctly. The two great baskets of saving promise in the Hebrew scriptures are the promise to David of a son who would be a forever king and the promise to Abraham of a seed who would be a blessing to all nations. A promise meeting Israel's deepest longing for another David and a promise meeting the Gentiles' deepest longings for a universal savior. The name son of David says, Israel, behold, your Messiah. The name son of Abraham says, nations, behold your hope. Jesus is both in one. Matthew is claiming that this is who Jesus is. God's anointed king of Israel and savior of the world. The one who literally fulfills that uh, vision that was given to Isaiah centuries prior of the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. For to us a child is born, a son is given, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And notice again, he will, be, he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it up, holding it forever. This is who Matthew is claiming Jesus is. And that's all just in the first verse of this genealogy. Then Matthew starts in on all of this begatting, 
which um, actually I like the way uh, there's a, another scholar, David Bentley Hart, who translates it. Um, Abraham sired Isaac. Isaac sired, uh, who is it? Isaac sired Jacob. Jacob sired Judah and his brothers, and it goes on. Uh, I'll come back to as well why that particular translation is it's so good. Um, again, I'm not going to go through every name that is named. A lot of the important stuff comes up, and is, if you even just glance at it visually, every now and then there's something that interrupts sort of the, the regular rhythm and, and flow of things. And that's where some really interesting stuff is and what I want to point out, including the first interruption is in that same first verse of lineage when we hear that uh, Abraham sired Isaac, Isaac sired Jacob, Jacob sired Judah and his brothers. That little and his brothers happens one other time in verse 11. And Josiah sired Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile. So uh, another scholar that I'll be uh, referring to probably quite a bit is Janine Brown, um, and I think she has the best take on this. She writes that the repetition of that phrase um, and his brothers highlights two important moments of the Old Testament story when Israel was away from the land promised to Abraham and his descendants. The time in Egypt, which is Judah and his brothers, um, and the time in Babylon, which is Jeconiah and his brothers. Since Matthew's genealogy emphasizes Jesus as Messiah, who brings God's restoration, these two junctures in Egypt and in Babylon emphasize the motif of exile that necessitates restoration. The next interruption to the sort of regular siring and begatting is the first of four that would have totally surprised the original readers or hearers of Matthew's genealogy and at the same time revealed the barrier-breaking inclusion of God's love. In verse 3, Judah uh, sired Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. We hear similar in verse 5, Salmon sired Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz the father, sired Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Then again in verse 6, and Jesse, the father of King David, David sired Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Four times, four women are introduced into the genealogy. And then if you add to that uh, the verse 16, and Jacob sired Joseph, the husband of Mary, who, of whom was born Jesus. The inclusion of these women is astonishing for several reasons. First of all, that they're women. Women were almost never included in genealogies because 
they weren't important in the minds of most men and those people who are worried about and have some influence on what happens with genealogy. Women are almost never included. So that in of itself is revealing. Matthew is showing that this long-held bias of men holding their own importance above women is not from God. In fact, still to this day, many of the commentaries on these verses written by men claim that, the, that Matthew included these women, except for Mary, perhaps, but even her story has a little bit of intrigue this way. But there are many men commentators who say that the only reason these women are included, or the main reason, is that uh, they all have some sort of sordid sexual aspect to their story. But the men in those same stories are the ones who are generally at fault, or at least equally at fault. So that doesn't make sense. Anna Case Winters writes this. Much has been made of issues around sexuality for these women. Tamar seduced her father-in-law. Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth seduced her kinsman Boaz. Bathsheba committed adultery and so on. However, this really does not distinguish them from the men on the list. Judah, Tamar's father-in-law, was seeking a prostitute when he came upon Tamar and thought she was a prostitute. And David committed adultery with Bathsheba as well as Bathsheba supposedly committing uh, adultery like she had much choice in it. And then on top of it, David had her husband killed uh, so he could continue to have adultery with her. David's sinfulness especially really stands out, and this is why I love David Bentley Hart's translation, Sired. The way it comes out when you read it through, you're going through, and so-and-so, so-and-so sired so-and-so, and so-and-so sired so-and-so, so-and-so sired so-and-so, and then we get to David, and David, David sired Solomon by Uriah's wife. <laughs> I mean, that just sets it up perfectly. He sired by somebody else's wife. It's just so obvious that David is the one that Matthew is indicting in that situation. I believe then that the reason that the four women are included is far more about them being outsiders. They were outside of the covenant. Again, in one sense, they were outsiders simply in the fact that they were, they were uh, women. And even if they had been Jewish women, they would have been outsiders in terms of the circle of power. But just as importantly, none of these women are Jewish. None of these women are Jewish. They weren't a part of the covenant people, and yet they are vital branches of God's family tree. So vital that Matthew goes out of his way to make sure that everyone knows that they are included. And again, I think Dale Bruner does a great job of highlighting what this means for us and for the world. He writes, By this inclusion of the four foreign women into his genealogy, it is clearly one of Matthew's purposes to attack racial and national chauvinisms in the people of God and to warn the new people of God, the church, against any return 
to national or racial enthusiasms. Jesus' own racial heritage is mixed, not just at insignificant points in Israel's history, but with persons as significant in that history as Judah and David. Racial prejudice is condemned on the opening page of the New Testament. It is important to note, moreover, that it was not the foreign women, but the believing males, Judah and David in particular, who were the villains in these stories. This needs to be said not only to avoid sexism, but also to avoid a subtle racism that would suggest it was the reputed racial impurity of the women that caused the moral impurities of the men. And that happens to this day where we, oh, it's those outsiders that bring in the bad stuff. Not so. God's family tree reveals God's radical inclusiveness of all people and God's intention for all people to love one another. Then the other major interruption I find revealing uh, comes in verse 11, and that's, we heard a little bit of this before, uh, Josiah, sire Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile in Babylon. We see uh, with this genealogy of Jesus that Matthew includes the bad as well as the good, all of it. The exile happened because God's people had turned their backs on the way of God and fallen apart as a society, basically, because of that. They ended up losing spiritual connection to God and then, ultimately, physical connection to the land promised. But God didn't abandon them. God loved them even when God's people didn't return that love or live as God intended. We see that story repeated over and over again throughout this family tree when we look closely. God, but God continues to love everyone, individuals who mess up, and even a whole nation that has gone wrong. In his own uh, commentary on this section of Ma Matthew, um, Stanley Hauervoss recounts the insight of a different theologian named Henry McCabe. Hauervoss quotes him, uh, suggests that Henry McCabe suggests that in this genealogy, Matthew was reminding us that Jesus was tied to a squalid reality of human life, often exemplified in our sexual and our sexual behavior and our politics. McCabe runs through the list of characters that make up the genealogy, noting that they are anything but an admirable group of folk. The unscrupulous but entertaining Jacob won his position in the line that leads to Christ by lying and cheating his blind father. David, the ruthless and highly successful bandit, unites the tribes of Israel through intrigue and murder. Rehoboam, son of Solomon, loses most of David's gains through arrogance and greed. Ahaziah, son of Ahab, continued his father's ways as a sadistic mass murderer. Jesus did not belong to the nice, clean world of middle-class respectability, but rather he belonged to a family of murderers, 
cheats, cowards, adulterers, and liars. He belonged to us and came to help us. No wonder he came to a bad end, but he did give us some hope. All of this is great news. It reveals that God's family tree looks a lot like our family trees. Now, I'm sure that most of us already know of at least some questionable characters in our family tree or interesting, colorful stories in our family history. But for those of you who don't know any of those, it wouldn't take very long on Ancestry.com to find some, some of these stories and characters. But Matthew's genealogy of Jesus reveals that it wouldn't matter who shows up, who turns up, or what turns up. God loves all people. In fact, William Barclay sees the heart of God revealed in this family tree. He writes, surely there is something very lovely here. Here, at the very beginning of his gospel, Matthew shows us in symbol the very essence of the gospel of God in Jesus Christ. For here he shows us the barriers going down. The barrier between Jew and Gentile is down. The barrier between male and female is down. The barrier between saint and sinner is down. Here at the very beginning of the gospel, we are given a hint of the all-embracing width of the love of God. God's love embraces all human beings. And God calls us, all human beings, to love one another. In her novel, Evensong, uh, Gail Godwin has a scene in a small town Episcopalian church uh, that includes a local priest at one point preaching on Matthew's genealogy in Advent. So the same setup as we are in right now. Towards the end of uh, the sermon in this fictional setting, the priest has some lovely words about God's love, and she closes her, her sermon with a thought about what it means for us. And in that closing, uh, those closing words from this fictional preacher, she actually quotes a real-life Catholic priest, Raymond Brown. Um, and I'm going, their closing words uh, are going to be my closing words as well. Um, the story of the origin of Jesus Christ begins with Abraham beginning Isaac. No mention of the deserving older son who uh, poor unfairly banished Ishmael. Then Isaac begets Jacob, not a word about his older brother Esau, whose birthright Jacob stole. And it goes on like this. What is going on here? Matthew's genealogy is showing us how the story of Jesus Christ contained and would continue to contain the flawed and inflicted and insulted, the cunning and the weak-willed and the misunderstood. His is an equal opportunity ministry for crooks and saints. And what about the final 14 generations that I didn't even basically go through because they're all mostly unknown or unremarkable, she writes. Um, who was Azor or Achim? Who was Eliud or Eliezer? These, as she says, 
you won't find their names in a concordance or in a biblical who's who. And this is, of course, where the message settles directly upon us. If so much powerful stuff can happen and can have been accomplished down through the millennia by wastrels, betrayers, and outcasts, and through people who were such complex mixtures of sinner and saint, and through so many obscure and undistinguished others, isn't that a pretty hopeful testament to the likelihood that God is using us? With our individual flaws and gifts, in all manner of peculiar and unexpected ways, who of us can say that we are not in the process of being used right now this Advent? to fulfill some purpose whose grace and goodness would boggle our imagination if we could even begin to get our minds around it. Let me conclude my sermon with Father Brown, Raymond Brown, since he's, uh, she, he inspired this uh, sermon. His thoughtful reflection on Matthew's genealogy encourages us during this liturgical season of Advent to continue the story of the sequence that leads to Jesus Christ. In this way, Jesus called Peter and Paul. Paul called Timothy. Timothy called someone else. And someone else called you. Now you must call someone else. Our family tree reveals God's love for all people and inspires us to love all human beings as well.